0: This morning as we come together, we celebrate our union in Christ because we have here uh, experienced a partnership and a fellowship together in the blood of Christ. And First John talks about that fellowship of his blood that is the uniting factor, that we have experienced his grace. And as a result of that experience of grace, God has knit our hearts together with his and therefore, because it's knit together with his, we're knit together with each other. This morning, we're going to resume our study of, of Romans, uh, Paul's letter to the church at Rome. And so we invite you to read along. We're going to be in chapter 5. Uh, we're going to be reading verses 1 to 11 this morning. If you didn't bring a Bible with you, there's one in the rack in the chair in front of you. And I think, and I'm going to need some help on this. I think the text today, Romans one, I mean 5, 1 to 11, is on page 942. Can somebody confirm that? Anybody, i got a head nod there. Yes. But you're just tricking them, aren't you? You really don't. No, it's, it's okay. 9.42. And I'm going to read verses 1 to 11. Just give you a context, we took a couple of weeks off because of uh, our desire to focus on the cross and the blood of Christ over, over the Easter uh, series. And so we did that. And now we want to come back to this. And Paul has given us in chapter 5 almost that moment where you can kind of go, whew, because he's been laying it on pretty heavy. The doctrinal part of, of chapters one to four has been pretty stiff. And, and so now we get to the place in chapter five where we're able to see Paul saying, now, so what? I've given you all that information. Now what are we going to do with that that will allow you to appropriate And apply these truths. And so let's begin reading in verse 1 through verse 11. And we want to just kind of wrap some things into some packages that make sense to us today. Things that we can actually know we're going to be able to benefit from as a result of the doctrine of of chapters 1, 2, 3, and 4. Uh, Now we see them applied in chapter 5. So beginning with verse 1, chapter 5, here's what he has to say. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith... Father, the language of of love and peace and joy and that which we see in this passage is not unfamiliar to us and not even unfamiliar to the secular culture around us, but we thank you, Lord, that it is only in the grace in which we stand on a foundation that's unshakable and immovable in Christ, and having been justified by grace through faith to stand on that platform, Lord, that these things become real and permanent and dynamically alive in our lives, So Lord, show us your way. Show us how to walk in these things for the glory of your name. It's in Christ's name we thank you. Amen. I grew up in my high school and college years in the the 60s and 70s. And so if you remember reading and some of you are thinking, oh, I'm actually born until 1995. Okay, I get that. I understand. But uh, just a little historic journey here, and in the late 60s, a movement arose of a a group of folks who were known in this country as hippies. You remember hearing about those folks? Uh, My my kids found my driver's license when I was 20 years old, laughed riotously for a while because my hair was really hippie-length hair. Uh, I actually had and wore in public, on purpose, a pair of hip-hugging, bell-bottom purple pants. Yeah, I actually wore that and I looked in the mirror and went and walked out the door and thought that looked good. You know, I I actually wore that. And so, yeah, so I've got, I can't really say, look at those crazy people back there. I was was one. Um, But what happened during that day was that there was... um sort of a recentering of the public agenda that, that shifted the, the flow of where things have been going for generations. World War II had ended in, in the uh, middle of the 1940s, and, and then America started on a whole journey of, of materialistic uh, glut, and we found all kinds of things that were working, and we were producing, and we were building homes, and there was an emerging middle class, and all this stuff was happening, and, and then there was beginning to be a distinction between the haves and the have-nots, and, and all of a sudden, in the middle of all that, arose the hippie movement, and they're... Basic battle cry was not a battle cry, it was a cry of love and peace. As a matter of fact, they got a couple of pictures of, of that up there. You know, that, that's sort of, I mean, how weird is that? You, you'd, you'd actually do that to a car. Uh, and so here's, here's the, the comment in the middle of all that there was a prophet of the day by the name of John Lennon. Those who are old enough to know who John Lennon is are going smirk, smirk. We know who John is. Okay, just a question. Out of, out of curiosity, how many in here know who John Lennon is? Okay, that's good. Right, lower your hand. And how many of you actually know the name of the group of which he was a part? Okay, and can you say it out loud? Beatles, yeah. Okay, got it, right. Do you, you do understand, though, and this is very important to give context here. That was 50 years ago. I need a stool. Uh, I need somewhere to sit down. 50 years ago. And, and he was the, the prophet of peace in his day, and he was sort of reflecting that. And so here's what he said. He says, if someone thinks that peace and love are just a cliche that must have been left behind in the 60s, that's a problem. Peace and love are eternal. Okay, John. Yes, but no. Love and peace are eternal, but not in terms that you're talking about. Because if, if you look at the 50 years before 1965, if you want to kind of use that as the middle part, what 50 years before 1965 puts you where? World War I. I mean, 1915, really? A century ago. 1915. I mean, in my days, like 1965, we're cool, we're happening, we're like wearing, you know, purple bell bottoms Uh, and so we've learned so much more than those people who came through the 20s as flappers and you know zoot suits and whatever else was going on back there We're much cooler than they were but what happened between 1915 and 1965 you had world war one the war to end all wars and then you had world war two didn't really settle a whole lot there either and then you had the korean conflict police action it was war And then you had Vietnam. And so as Vietnam is unfolding, you have the hippie generation saying, make love, not war. Okay, that's really stupid. Uh, But that was the mantra of the day. Make love, not war. What he's saying, he says, we want love and peace, but what they meant by love and peace was sex and pacifism. It's not the same thing as Paul was talking about in Romans five. Okay, let's just make it clear. When John Lennon says love and peace are permanent, he, he's on the right track. They're eternal. Yeah, he's on the right track, but not apart from God. Love, apart from God, ends up being very conditional. It becomes very self-serving. It becomes very much sentimentalized. It becomes very much saturated with the physicality of sexuality. That's what love ended up being. And so that was the, the love children of that period of time were very much into that. And, and then there was this. Which is what? Victory. No. No, this is victory. This is peace. That's right. Churchill does this, and it's victory. And Lenin does this, and it's peace. uh, And neither one of them were really right. We have peace, not as just the absence of conflict until the next staging platform can be established for the next war. That's not peace. Peace. And so we, we have a dilemma in that, that we can look at no appreciable gains in civilization in the intervening 50 years. The, we, we've advanced technologically. We can do a whole lot more stuff faster to get ourselves into deeper trouble. We can kill more people quicker now than we ever could, and we're trying to figure out how to control that. But the urge to not control it has not gone away. And so love and peace Concepts, yes, but Paul comes into the middle of this and says, why did that movement fail? Why, why did that emphasis back in the late 60s and early 70s, what, what happened there? They had not read chapters 1 and 2 of the book of Romans. They didn't get that. That <clears throat> if you suppress the truth about God in unrighteousness, it's not going to go anywhere good. You're going to be in trouble. And you get to chapter 2, and it starts unpacking some of the, the, the kinds of sin problems and rebellion against God that's emerging. And you're really not declaring peace. What you're doing is declaring war on God. And the one who created all things, you're in hostility, and you're declaring yourself to be an enemy of him. You're going to, you're going to run into some major headwinds and some serious consequences. But chapters one and two kind of laid that out and and said, no, this is the problem. Sinners cannot enjoy love and peace on their terms because they're always going to screw it up because self-interest is so dominant that those things will always be tainted by our sinful disposition. Chapter three sums it up by saying, look, all have sinned and fallen short of God. There's nobody who does well, nobody who does what's good, nobody who seeks after God. There is none righteous, not even one, Love and peace is pretty hollow, empty language apart from God. Love today, still being misunderstood, ill-defined, peace is just an illusion because we don't even have inner peace in our culture, much less peace between people and definitely not peace between nations just an illusion of, of what could be apart from Christ. And so Paul comes into chapter 5, and he begins with this amazing thing. Therefore, after reading the mess that we've gotten ourselves into in chapters 1, 2, and then everybody centers in chapter 3, and then getting to chapter 4 and says, Abraham believed God. He didn't declare himself at enmity with God. He wasn't hostile toward God. He believed God, and that counted, as far as God was concerned, as righteous. He did what God said. He believed what God promised, and he trusted in that. And therefore, God says, I declare you to be righteous, Abraham. And therefore, all who have that same kind of belief in God, who are willing to trust him in his promises and provisions, he says, therefore, they will be justified by faith. Chapter 5. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we who are in Christ, we who have trusted in His name, we who are in Him have gained access to obtain this position that allows us to stand in His grace. You've been justified by faith. Having been justified by faith in God, we have some things that he promises us. Verse one says we've been justified by faith. Chapter uh, five, verse nine says that we've been justified by his blood. Therefore, the blood has paid the price, cleansed us from unrighteousness, and has made it possible for the penalty for our sin to be paid. So justified by faith in his name, justified by his blood. There are three incredible blessings that this passage tells us are ours. Having been justified by Christ now if you haven't been justified by Christ if you're still in your sin he says you cannot count on these happenings you you may desire them you you may you may paint your Volkswagen bus flowered like you may put flowers in your hair you may stick flowers down the barrels of National Guard troops at Kent State you may do all kinds of crazy things from the 60s that they did saying we are oblivious to the dangers of unregenerate hearts trying to find love and peace but you will never find it until Jesus Christ gives it. You're not gonna have either one. So he says there's three blessings you're gonna get. You're gonna get the love and you're gonna get the peace, but I'm gonna throw in joy just because I'm God. (laughs) And you need joy in your life. So he tells us, he says first of all, we have peace with God. Having been justified by faith in the Son of God, having been justified by faith in Christ, verse one, we have peace with God. That is good news. You ever been at war with somebody and then found yourself in peace, having been in hostility relationship and and then come out of that? Hebrews 12, verse three says, consider him, God, who endured hostility, such hostility from sinners against himself. Consider him, what he did, how he gave himself up for you even then. He had that experience of our hostility poured out against him. And we've insulted him, we've mocked him, we've defied him, we've denied him, we've attacked him, we've fought against him. And yet still he endured that hostility against himself and made it possible for us to be justified by faith and declared righteous by this incredibly gracious, loving, merciful God. So he says, now, I want to talk to you about peace Instead of giving us revenge, he offers the olive branch of hope and peace through Christ. This, this past week in the paper, it was reminding us that 150 years ago, not 50 years ago to the hippie time, but, but 150 years ago, a, a momentous thing happened in the U.S. The Civil War came to an end. 150 years ago, on April 9th, Robert E. Lee met with Ulysses S. Grant at the Appomattox Courthouse up in Virginia. And Robert E. Lee signed the terms of surrender to Grant. Turned over his 30,000 troops there to him. And, and uh, we'll, more detail about that in a minute. But April 9, that's when that happened in 1865. So a week or so ago, that's when we had that 150th celebration of that. The paper this week here says now, right over here in Durham at Bennett Place on the 17th of April, eight days later, and then following on the 26th, it was ratified. But on the 17th, General Johnston met with General Sherman, who's really popular in the South. (laughs) They met together after that campaign through the South where he's burning and destroying and doing all this stuff. He comes here to the South, and they sign a surrender document there in which Johnston turns over 90,000 of his troops in surrender. So actually what happened over here in Durham was a bigger thing than what happened in Appomattox. But something happened on the 14th and 15th of April that made this not a news item. April 14th and 15th, in the evening of the 14th, uh, a guy named John Wilkes Booth put a bullet in the back of Abraham Lincoln's head, and he died early the next day. All that's happening right within that two week, three week period of time. Hostilities between the armies came to an end. The terms of peace were very generous, frankly. Grant gave opportunity for um, there to be a paroling of all the officers and all the soldiers from the Confederate army, instead of of locking up the the generals and the leaders and and throwing them away in in prison. No, he says it's it's a granted parole for all the officers in the Confederate Army. That was incredibly gracious. Lee said, can, can, the, can the officers keep their horses and their mules that they've brought their own animals because they've got to go back home now and they've got nothing to go back to if they don't take their own animals? He said, I can't put that in the agreement, but we will not stop any officer who carries his animals home with them as well as their sidearms. And, and they do have to turn in their guns all the cannons, all the muskets, everything else. They have to go back to their home states and, and turn those in. Same thing was agreed by, by uh, Sherman right here with Johnston in Durham. And the Civil War came to an end. But peace was not really there. That same kind of hostility prompts Booth to shoot Lincoln in the middle of all that. And even though the hostilities came to an end, a lot of people are still ready to stick the South will rise again, bumpers on, stickers on their car. I mean, it's, it's just the way human nature is. And God says, here's the plan. You were more hostile toward me than any nation has been against any other nation. You have defied me. You have lived in opposition to me. You have warred against me and my ways. I have given you instruction of what to do. You have flown in the opposite direction as fast and as hard and as belligerently as you could. You have done all of that. And here is what I want to say to you. I'm going to offer you terms of peace that are unlike any that have ever been offered in the history of the universe. You can have peace with God through faith in Jesus Christ. Peace. No enmity on my side toward you ever again. Because all the enmity and all the wrath and all the vengeance that I would have had against you, I have poured that out on my son who took your place in receiving all that at the cross and therefore having been justified by faith in him and putting your trust in him, that is your point of surrender. You give up your life and surrender to Christ and I will count you as righteous in my eyes and I will declare that you have peace with God. Wow. Peace with God. What an incredible terms that last forever. He says, no, no, I'm not done. You're not going to just have peace with me. The enmity is taken away. The war is over between us when you've surrendered to Christ. You're going to have that. And having been justified by faith in Christ, you do have peace with God. But he says, here's what happens. I want you to know that you're going to have not just peace with me, you're going to have the peace of God in you. Philippians chapter four, he's talking about not worrying, not being anxious about anything, prayer and supplication, let your requests be made known to God. He says, and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension or all understanding, is gonna guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. So you're not gonna just be at peace with him. You're gonna have the peace of God in you. You and God are all right. You're, You're not at war with him anymore. And his peace will be your peace, have you ever been at enmity with somebody? You don't even use those words. You're just kind of like, we ain't speaking to each other. That's what I'm talking about. It may be your husband or wife. It may be a good friend. It may be somebody that you've walked through life with, and something happened, and there was a misunderstanding, or there was a, a selfish action, or there was something that, that messed things up, and, and you guys have had a hard time. As a matter of fact, you go to church here together, and you're hoping that you don't run into them in the hall. Praise Jesus, to good to see you this morning. You know, or, or worse, you just turn and go down another hall so you don't have to run into him. How pitiful is that? We have peace with God, we can have peace with each other. But then, then comes that day when you both are weary of pretending that it's not a problem. And you go and the enmity between the two of you is taken out of the way, you sit down, one confesses to another, one asks for forgiveness, one offers forgiveness, whatever happens, but somebody takes the initiative, and and the breach is mended. And you who were avoiding this, dear friend, and and you didn't know what to say, and you didn't know how to fix it, but but God got in there, and, and you were able to experience peace with him. Do you remember that feeling when it was all right? And you walked away from that, and it's just like... Whew, there was just this godly exhale. <sighs> Pete and I are all right now. You want to go get coffee this week? No, I still hate your guts, but I mean... Yeah. No, no, of course there's nothing. There's nothing there anymore. Yes, we'd love to. Yeah, I come on by the house and I have dinner. Yeah, okay, that'd be great. Let's plan our vacation together next year. Not so fast. <laughs> Let's give us a chance to kind of see if it's going to last. No, but there's a sense in which <sighs> I've, got, I've got the peace of God. I, I have no anxiety about this. I, I'm not worried anymore. My, my gut's not churning anymore. I, I don't have hair standing up on the back of my neck when I hear his name mentioned anymore. I, I've got the peace of God here. So I have peace with God. There's no more war going on between me and the Lord. And I've got the peace of God which he has granted to me, which tells me that I can be reconciled with him. Uh, all, all things are out of the way. In verse 11, more than all these things he's just said, we can rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ through whom we have now received reconciliation. It's just all good. No more arm's length stuff. No more holding it out for something to happen to bring it back together. It's just all good. Reconciled, restored, renewed, refreshed, peace with God, bringing peace of God, bringing reconciliation, and all is good. That's peace. And Paul says, since we have been justified by faith in Christ, we have that. Peace sign, people still looking, never going to experience it until the Prince of Peace is at the conference table where they're signing those treaties. But you, who have been justified by faith in Christ, have peace with God. But more than that. He goes on to say, you not only have peace and the conflict is out of the way, but now you can rejoice in the Lord. That joy has been missing. And it has to be tempered at best if there's some kind of enmity between you and God because you just know everything's not right. Now everything's right between you and God. You've, you've got peace with God. He says, now you can rejoice. Here's, here's the plan for you. You, you had as Paul describes in chapters 1 and 2, you had scorn for the glory of God. You would had no interest in the glory of God. You wanted to do everything you could to suppress the, the truth about that. You were radically opposed to him. He says, we have identified that. Chapter 3, he says, you fell short of the glory of God. You never could get there. Chapter 4 says, here's how you restore that relationship by believing this God, that his ways are best, and being reconciled to him by justification through faith in his name. Now, chapter 5 He says, here's the plan. You now can rejoice in the hope that you have of sharing in that glory. You're no longer scorning that glory, falling short of that glory, because if you're being justified by faith in the Son of God, you get to share in that glory. And the beauty and the radiant splendor of Christ that you have beheld in Him is now gonna be in you. And your face is going to shine with the brightness of the radiance of the Son of the living God when your life is filled with the joy of Christ and his splendid glory will be seen in you. You see, back in the 60s, they are going after peace and love. God says, yeah, those are good and those are eternal, but I'm gonna gonna throw in joy because I know what it does and I know what it looks like. No, this healthy dose of joy shows up here in this passage, three different circumstances. He starts off in in this first place in verse 2 It says that we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. No longer scorning it, no longer falling short. We rejoice in hope of the glory. We once were despairing that we would ever have anything to do with that God. And he has now come for us, justified us, given us life in himself. And now we can rejoice in the hope that he's given us. We had despair. He gave us hope. We had eyes darkened with the veil of hopelessness and blindness spiritually and he's removed the veil and shown us the glory of God and now we've been drawn to him and we've embraced his forgiveness and we've been made new and our despair has made everything new and our hope gives us reason to rejoice. You ever ever been to that place where you just, you didn't have any thought that it was ever going to get better and you just kind of thought this is it, this is is what it's going to be and uh, even if it does get better, it's probably going to be a settled for better rather than a real better. Yeah, that's not a good place to be. Yesterday we had the women's conference here, and, and Kathy and I got a chance to teach. I don't know, it's probably 10 years we've been teaching this class on, on marriage. We have a, a group of, of women in the morning, a group of women in the afternoon, and, and we're teaching about marriage and strengthening your marriage. And, and every time we do this, I come out of there thinking, what hope, God, you've given me in the picture of my bride. I mean, this is unbelievable. I ask her permission to tell you this, by the way. And so she's blushing over there, so I'm going to look this way. Um, But I thought, you know, here I was. You remember I told you the story, the purple bell-bottom guy? (laughs) She looked beyond my faults. (laughs) And she saw something that God gave her eyes to see that nobody should have seen and my desperation was that I will never really be able to find the kind of woman who shows up in Proverbs 31. I'll never find that lady. As a matter of fact, I wasn't even looking for somebody like that. I was just looking for somebody to go out with me the second time. I mean, you know, come on. Let's get right down to practicalities. I'm despairing of ever, you know. And then we started going out. And then she said yes. And then for 42 years, she's been my bride. She's like, Are you kidding me? God, my, my despair turned to hope, and I get to stand daily in the grace of Christ and be reminded that I get to rejoice in the hope of God's glory in our marriage. And then God gave us three sons, and then by his incredible mercy again, you think I had no chance. I got three boys I had no chance either, you know? Uh, and it's nothing against them. They have my gene pool. What do you expect? And so, and, and then God brought these three incredible women into their lives. And now, whenever we get together as a family, I'm just thinking, grace abounds in this home. I get to rejoice in the hope that God has given us in Christ. Because I get to see the manifestation of it right in very practical terms, right in my own family. And what a blessed thing it is to look at these three young ladies who are our daughters-in-law and know that they actually chose to be horners. <laughs> they weren't born into it. They actually chose to be horners. I tell them that often. You chose this. I remember that. You said, I do, I will, all that stuff. You did. I was there. <clears throat> we rejoice in hope that God gives us. You're going to stand in grace, he says. You've obtained, you've obtained access to this grace by faith and therefore you stand in a place that you had no right to. You, you get a vista of glory that has been granted you in Christ. You got some hope. You got a future. I know the plans I have for you, and they are for good, for welfare of your heart and your life and the blessing of God on you. So having been justified by faith in Christ, I've got peace with God, but I can also rejoice in hope of this glory of what's before me. Rejoicing in hope is God's design for us in Christ. But then he goes on to say, not just rejoicing in hope. Who wouldn't want to rejoice in that situation? In the next passage, he tells us, no, you can rejoice also in suffering. Verses three to five. Not only do we get to rejoice in hope. That's that's an easier take. Rejoice, Lord, because of the hope that you've given me of the glory of Christ being revealed and the grace in which we stand. Thank you for that. Rejoicing is easy there. But not only that, we rejoice in our sufferings, he says in verse three. Knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character. And character, full circle, produces hope. And hope doesn't disappoint. It doesn't put us to shame. Every pang of suffering produces endurance when I depend on Christ. Every experience of heartache that I go through when I'm in Christ causes me to rejoice because I know that the process of his shaping my life is going to include not just days of great hope and beauty and glory, but also experiencing the sharp edge of the pruning shears. And sometimes it's going to be the time of enduring some, some painful experiences in relationships or, or circumstances in life, and, and I'm going to learn and grow And because of those times of suffering are going to, going to produce in me endurance, and that's going to produce character. And that character is going to remind me that my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, regardless how cool I think I am. I dare not trust this, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. That sounds like a song. That sounds like something we ought to be singing. I think we just did. He says we rejoice in suffering. Now, where do we see in the human experience any parallel to that rejoicing and suffering? Best place I know is in childbirth. Guys, let me just give you a hint here. I'm getting ready to tread on some really dangerous ground because we don't know nothing, okay? You understand? We don't know nothing. Ladies, we admit it. We don't know anything. We don't know what this is like, so relax. We're not pretending that we get it. We don't get it. But I've been birth coach three different times for three little baby boys to come into this world, and I have never in my life seen anything like it. Because this little sweetie who's my bride is just doing stuff that I'm thinking, Oh how is it possible when when she's at the end of herself and there's nothing left to give and she is completely spent physically, emotionally and everything. Ladies say amen. You know. And then this little little creature enters the world. And then that baby is handed to Mama. And the joy that so quickly replaces the suffering is something to behold. Now, I'm not stupid enough to say, and all memory of the pain is gone. <laughs> no, that's, guys, that's not the time to say, you know, we need to have several more kids. That's not the time to bring that up. You, know, you can get hurt saying stuff like that. But what a transformation from suffering to joy. Boom, just like that. And so he says, you rejoice in hope of the glory that's coming. You rejoice in suffering because you know that, yeah, you may be mourning at night, but joy comes in the morning. He says you get to rejoice in that. And thirdly, he says you get to rejoice in God himself. That's where he comes back to verse 11. This is, this is incredible. He says you get to rejoice in God himself. More than that, such incredibly perceptive words, more than that, verse 11, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ through whom we have now received reconciliation. God himself is our reason for joy. You have gained Christ. Paul says in Philippians 3, I consider everything as rubbish. If I could just gain Christ, if I could just have him. And so there's this picture that we, we have of, of, is God enough for us? The question that we have to ask ourselves, is he all we want, all we desire? Is he our passion? And, and that's what he says. You rejoice, yes, in hope that is realized through the grace of Christ. You rejoice in suffering, but, but your greatest joy is still pending. You've got a taste of it now, a foretaste of glory divine now. You've, you can see through a glass dimly, and you're still amazed at the beauty of God. But he says the day's coming when you're going to see him face to face, and it will be shouting time where the joy will flood your soul. I was at a conference this past week, uh, the Gospel Coalition Conference down in Orlando, and the theme for the week was coming home. And so we had uh, sermons each, each day of the conference on what that is going to bring for us, moving from the prophetic things all the way through uh, to the last day where he just read Revelation 21, 22, most of them. Just, just was reading it. I'm thinking, yeah, well, he's getting ready to preach. No, he just kept reading. And the more he read, the more we were thinking, you know what? You, you don't even need to preach. This is unbelievable. And he's describing heaven and describing the new Jerusalem and describing all that. And here's a concern that, that was pressed on my heart that time, and it's been there before. We, we hear of heaven, and, and the first thing that, that kind of comes to our minds is that no more death that's it you're, you're alive forever if you're in Christ having been justified by faith in Christ you are alive forevermore no more death but we love the idea of no more tears either and no more pain no more sorrow those are things that are incredibly appealing about the body do you think that's appealing I think that's appealing those are there for us and then then we remember you know, my dad's there my, my great granddad who fought at Bentonville in the weeks leading up to the my, my great granddad was a follower of Christ he's, he's going to be there I've never met the guy it's going to be awesome I get to meet him there, there are other people that we know who have gone on before us and, and the prospect of being in glorious reunion with those folks stirs us up and we get excited about that as well and, and, and why not? and then we start thinking about the physical properties of the place streets of gold are you kidding me? I mean what? Streets of gold, and, and it's, it's shimmering in its beauty, and, and this place is just ex- massive in, in scale. 1,500-mile cube? That's big. It says the, the, the gates, the entrance points into this, the walls of the city, 12 different gates, and each gate, the door, the gate door, is one pearl. That's a big pearl. You know, but pearl jam, I mean, that's a different kind of jam, door jam. For, it's a pearl, one pearl. I want to see that, okay? I, I want to see that. that. That's exciting to me. And, I think, and the river of life coming down. the trees of life, all that. I, I see all that. But here's the thing. For many people, when you talk to them about that place and what God has for you there, what's missing in their conversation is, I get to see Jesus. The Lord God himself dwells there. And he is so glorious and radiant in his splendor and the brilliance and the light of his countenance is so amazing that there's no reason for a sun or a moon or a lamp or anything else there because just his presence illuminates all of it all the time. <laughs> wow. How is that possible? I just want to see you. He says you can rejoice in God himself. He is your treasure. He is what in whom you get when you've been justified by faith. So rejoice. So here he is saying, we've been justified. Since we've been justified by faith, we have peace with God. And we have the peace of God as a result of that peace with him. We can rejoice in the Lord because we rejoice in this new hope that's been established that is not gonna be the way it used to be now that you're in Christ. You've been given this grace in which you stand and you have this new vista viewing the world. And so you rejoice in hope and you rejoice even when sufferings happen because it's proof that God's not done with you yet and he's still making you over, transforming you into his image. And you rejoice in God himself that's there for you. But there's that last thing, the love. He says, You're absolutely flooded with His love. And people ask, Well, how, if I just knew God loved me, I'd, I'd be more inclined to trust Him. How, how will I know He loves me? He says, well, I thought you'd never ask. In this passage, He gives us an answer to that. And it's a fascinating thing to, to see this passage where He tells us that, women, you, you can know this in the full measure of it. And you can see how this is to be demonstrated. There's, there's a little phrase that shows up in three different verses here. While we were, and then he explains how the love of Christ has been demonstrated. In v- verse 6, he says, while we were weak, we, we didn't have anything to offer. We were a bunch of weaklings, had nothing to bring to the game We had nothing we could offer God. We were actually nobodies, weak in every conceivable way. He says, while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Our weakness didn't push him away. Our weakness was something he saw as an opportunity to demonstrate the fullness of his love unconditional love. You don't deserve this. You've got nothing you can bring to me that I don't already have. You have no strength that I need to draw from. While we were still weak, while we were keep this word in mind, because the next is in verse eight. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So while we were weak, still weak, Christ died for us. While we were still sinners, how did he demonstrate his love? God demonstrated his love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. In that one more thing, he says, And while we were enemies of Christ, that's down in verse ten. While we were his enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. This is a glorious picture of grace. While we were weak, while we were enemies, while we were sinners, God demonstrated his own love toward us in showing that by having his son die for us. That is the amazing picture of his grace. And in each of these cases, he comes back and says much more in in verse 9. You've been justified by his blood, but much more, not just justified by his blood, much more, we shall be saved by by him from the wrath of God. Not just justified by his blood, but saved from his wrath, and we get a, a relationship with him. What is that? About. And then he says, now, much more, we who were wo- reconciled to him by his death have now been saved by him to live his life in the power of the resurrection. We-, we were saved by his grace. Yes, that's fantastic. Much more than that, though, you get to be able to save to live the life that he has in store for you. And then he wraps it up by saying, more than that, even, more than that, you've been saved to share his glory to enter into his abiding presence. This is the demonstration of the love of God for you. It's overwhelming that God pours out these things on you. So that the last thing is, is that we're flooded with his love. Just flooded with it. He pours into us this love. This is the kind of love that never gets used up, never wears out, and never runs out. It's that kind of love. He gives that to us in Christ and pours it out effusively upon us, not in not in dribs and drabs and measures. Verse 5 says, no, God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit's being given to us. Unmeasured, inexhaustible, love so bountiful that it can never run out. That's the kind of love he has given to you. It is a, an infinite, eternal, free love with no end in sight because there is no end to that love. That's an incredible picture. So So when you're thinking about experiencing that, and let's kind of go back to the picture of heaven for just a moment, and you're in his presence, and and you're experiencing that, there's the thought, how am I going to be flooded by that love there? Because if I'm going to be with him, this is the way my mind works, but there's going to be millions of others who have been saved by his grace, who have been justified by faith in his name. So am I going to have sufficient time to hang out with him? Will I have enough time to be with him, Right? Have you ever thought about that? Okay, I know, I'm just weird, but that's, is he gonna have enough time for me here? Yes, he does. Does he have enough time for me there? And the answer is yes, and why? There's no time there. (laughs) The, The clocks stay here. And there, I've got eternity to be with Jesus. And no clock's gonna be keeping score of how much time he gives me. So that when he's finally Saying, you know, we need to take a break. I'm okay with it. Because we've been together for millions of years. It's good. He may be tired of me, but I'll never get tired of him. The promise of the scriptures says he's not even tired of me. And then he moves on to you. Or, okay, maybe I'm in line behind you. I don't care. We get to be together, and time is not an issue. And then, is he going to have any love in reserve for me when it comes my time for him to pour out love? What's the answer to that? He never runs out. When he pours it out effusively upon me, he has not depleted or diminished his supply in the nth degree. Flooded by his love. So, 60s, flower child, whatever, you're looking for love and peace, you're never gonna find it apart from Christ. 2,000 years was your birth year and you're only 15 years old and you're seeking for a life of love and peace it's still the same answer apart from Christ it's not there and you had joy to it and you got something and you can seek peace and you can seek love and you can seek joy and I hope you do and you can stick flowers in your hair if you want to and you can paint your bus if you want to But until Jesus is the one who has justified you by faith, as the scriptures say he will for all who come to him, those are going to be dreams and illusions until Christ is the one who brings them. That's the joy that we have here. So we have peace with God through Christ. We we rejoice in the Lord always. We're flooded with his love. So what does this mean? First of all, if you're here and you don't know Christ, you're never going to have these things, and he wants you to have them. And so he says, you come to me. All who are weary and heavy laden and burdened and, and distressed and, and hopeless and desperate. You come to me, all of you, and I will give you rest. I will bring you into peace with me. If you're here this morning you don't know Christ, you need to come and meet this one. Secondly, what it means to you is that you may have settled for far less than the vista of the platform of grace that Christ has given you. And you're settling for far less peace far less joy and far less love than he is ready to flood you with. Seek him while he may be found and all that can be added to you. It's for you through Christ. Having been justified by faith, this is for you. And thirdly, if you know somebody that you love and they don't have this, it should be your life passion to make sure that they know about it. That you will tell them what God has done for them and what he has waiting for them if they would just surrender and enter into his terms of peace and then walk in the fullness of his joy so that they can experience the flood of his love. Then life will begin to kick it off at a whole new level. Folks, Romans 1 is just... Whew. awesome. God, that's, that's what chapters one to four are all about. Therefore, since we have been justified, this is what you get. I think that's pretty good. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. That we are in this journey not in our own strength and our own power, but on the grace of Christ, we're running a race and we're continuing to stand in his grace as we move along. We don't deserve what you've given us. And we know that came to us out of grace and mercy and love. And so we thank you for that. Lord, we long for this peace. Even as I say it, Lord, I know that there are men and women in this room who have a knotted stomach tied up that way because of the cares and the concerns and the worries and the anxieties of not being at peace with you and with what's going on in their lives right now they need to come to you and have peace with you and have the peace of God granted to them guard their hearts and minds in Christ that way and Father there are joyless Christians a concept that's foreign to the scriptures but who don't know how to rejoice except as they say it in my own way which is not your way and they need to give it up and enter into the gladness of heart that comes with a great joy of Christ. And Father, there's that, that need that we all have to love and to be loved. Thank you that you flood us with that love through Christ. We pray these things with confidence in your sufficiency. Amen.